And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Mary Kay Henry, the president of the Service Employees International Union. It was the second time that we have met here on the Axe Files. The first time was in January of 2016 uh, when she sent up a flare that she thought that Donald Trump could get elected president when a lot of other people thought that was not possible. She did so based on soundings of her own members. She also is in the thick of this COVID-19 story because so many of her members are healthcare workers on the front lines of this battle. So I thought it would be great to sit down with Mary Kay again and talk about what is going on with the crisis and where she sees the election today. Here is that conversation. Mary Kay Henry, it's so good to see you again, not face-to-face, but at least we can see each other. And I will tell our listeners that this is Mary Kay's second visit to the Axe Files. We had a great conversation in January of 2016. It was just the 21st episode. I think we're closing in on 400 now, Mary Kay. But your story was a great story. I'm going to summarize it really, really quickly because there are so many things going on right now that we need to talk about. But you you are the oldest of 10 kids from the Detroit area, a Catholic family, which may have been obvious from being the oldest of 10 kids. You were a, a, a gay activist on the Michigan State campus in a wholly different time. You were attracted to labor organizing as a vehicle to promote social justice. And you've had this meteoric rise through the labor movement and the service employees union, one of the few uh, labor organizations that has grown its ranks uh, over the last several decades. And you've been president of the SEIU for the past 10 years. I, I urge everybody to check out that last conversation, which I love because you have such an interesting journey, but Mary Kay, uh, we as a country are going through quite a journey ourselves right now, and you and your members are right in the thick of it. Yes, we are. The essential uh, workers on the front lines of this pandemic, and as the nation's largest healthcare union, the registered nurses and doctors and nursing home workers and home care workers and environmental service workers and dietary workers in our hospitals, nursing homes, and home care that are witnessing death and separation from family in ways that I regularly get to hear, David, like the emotional toll that it's taking on both the healthcare workforce and the frontline workforce who feel like they're walking into life and death situations um, is really hard to hold, both the grief and the outrage that people feel about Um, being put in this situation without having the personal protective equipment or the sick leave or the health care or access to testing they need to really take care of themselves and their families and the people that they care for in at work and the people they serve at work. So, yes, it's been quite an unprecedented time, I would say, both for our union and for service and care workers all across this country. You know, uh, when we talk about powerful labor leaders, it conjures us uh, up the image of guys with um, 18-inch collars and... That's uh, yesterday. And pinky rings. I know, but that's the caricature. But I know you to be a, a, a very feeling and caring person. This must 
take its toll on you. You have responsibility for, well, two million people plus overall, but this whole sector of workers that you represent. These stories must both tear you up and enrage you. Yes, totally. I think of um, our members have been incredibly generous, David, in allowing me to lead not just for the two million, but for the millions more fighting for 15 and a union, and in this case, for protection of all workers, which we think of the 64 million people that are living and trying to do their very best while earning poverty wages all across the service and care economy. And it does, I have to tell you, I was on a Teletown Hall two weeks ago that Elizabeth Warren and Speaker Pelosi joined us in, and the stories of our members both uh, touched my heart uh, in a very deep way, but also fueled my fire in the way you're saying about being enraged about the situation they're in, but also uh, recommitted the, ourselves to acting together. Like whenever you hear our members are organizing, the workers were organizing speak, they talk about the heartbreak, they talk about the rage, but they are going to persevere through their absolute understanding that together we can change this situation. So there's been, you know, distinctly different pictures of what is actually going on in the country. Uh, one offered by the, the president and the vice president uh, who have said that there are adequate numbers of tests, that there, the PPE, the protective equipment is there, that uh, people have what they need to deal with this crisis. You're painting a starkly different picture. Absolutely. Um, I have to say, it's like when I hear those statements, I want to like scream because this is a national emergency and people are still dying unnecessarily each and every day um, all across this country. And it uh, COVID-19, from our perspective, is laying bare a deep racial and economic inequality that has been woven into our economy and de democracy for a very long time. And that's why we think we are calling on every elected official um, to respond morally to this crisis, but also because it makes good economic sense to make sure that each and every worker is on the, on the front lines of this pandemic is protected and has the health and safety they need because the country can't recover from the pandemic if millions of workers are continuing to be exposed and share it because they can't take a day of paid sick or because they don't have health care to go see a doctor, um, that inequity has to be addressed um, and in order for us to recover our health as a nation and our economic well-being. It's a really interesting uh, thing. I mean, this really has held a lens up to the great faults in our uh, society. And this whole discussion, all of a sudden, there's an acknowledgement of what an essential worker is. The, the way we pay people and the way we treat people doesn't reflect that. I've heard so, so many workers, David, say, I was essential all along, and people are just waking up to the fact um, that I was essential. And that's what we're hearing, that people are risking everything. Um, yes. To go to care for an uh, elder in someone's home. I heard this from Kim Thomas from South Carolina. I don't have the protective equipment I need. I'm not paid sick and I don't have health care. I'm in this triple whammy 
and nobody's helping me figure out how to put food on the table and protect myself and stay healthy. The good news and bad news is these workers are finally being acknowledged as essential. And what essential means is they have the honor of going out and risking their lives while people who are frankly in different kinds of jobs, um, jobs that generally pay more, can stay home and operate from home and aren't exposed in this way. And some of that is translated into the inequities in these numbers of who actually has been infected and who has died as a result of this. And you see it really distinctly among uh, people of color and the disproportionate amount of suffering and loss we've seen there. And that includes many of your workers. That's exactly right. Um, There's an outrageous number of black and brown uh, working people and their families being infected and dying uh, because black and brown workers are on the front lines of this pandemic as airport workers, as uh, nursing assistants, as um, working in hospital service and care jobs uh, all across. And it's just wrong. We think that's what has created a reckoning in this country for understanding that we reject the idea that underlying health conditions are the source of the reason why more black and brown uh, people are dying. I think it's racial and economic inequality um, that hasn't uh, that is hitting those communities hardest uh, in this pandemic. Isn't the deprivation of sort of basic and reliable health care in some of these communities part of this? So, you know, I don't think you can separate out those two things that, you know, if you don't have access in the, at the front end to the kind of health care, preventative health care that you need, uh, and you're out there and being exposed to this, it's axiomatic that you're going to see a higher rate of sickness and death among those people. That's right. That the government and corporate choices to leave these communities unprotected were, was happening long before COVID, where lack of access to health care, jobs that don't provide health care, less services in these neighborhoods and communities, no union rights. Those um, communities are put on the edge of survival pre-COVID and now are most at risk because of COVID. You know, you said that you want to essentially calling on our, our leaders to exercise moral leadership in addressing these inequities that have been so exposed, but you you can see the other side of the argument forming, uh, which is our economy is in disarray. We don't really have the resources to do anything extraordinary at this time. You 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 know labor itself profits in times of high unemployment when workers are in demand. Now we have thirty three million people uh, drawing unemployment insurance and eager to work, and many of them won't have jobs to go back to, sadly, this fantasy that things are going to snap back overnight and everybody can go back to their jobs is not true. And you've had a lot of businesses that are teetering on the brink, a lot of them smaller businesses. So I I completely hear your argument, uh, and I think it has tremendous merit, but you're going to get a lot of pushback, as you always do, in suggesting that now is the time to rework our social compact, to rework our economic arrangements to reinvigorate labor rights. So 
tell me why why you feel this moment's going to be different. Well, I think we've seen this great divide, as you've described, and that the top 10% of our economy is actually reporting doing better than they've ever done. You know, you've heard the recent reports about Netflix and Zoom and uh, some uh, parts of the financial sector are flourishing uh, in this uh, kind of disaster environment. And so that's one issue. The second issue is government has been underfunded for decades. And I do think this is a moment of reckoning, David. Like, what kind of future do we want for all of us in this nation? And are we going to address the pain and inequality and injustice once and for all? Or are we going to further solidify a status quo where there's way too much wealth um, concentrated at the top of our economy and it's eroding our, we're seeing it right now, it's eroding our capacity to recover as a nation because of how unequal things are. We, we talked last time about the several decades leading back to the mid-70s erosion of labor participation, of labor's ability to leverage things for their members. We're now at a place where one in 10 workers in this country belong to unions, only 6% in the private sector. And you've said, I think I think you've said, but for only 42% are, are, are traditional labor organizations even feasible uh, at this time. So what do you foresee? I mean, you, you are a uh, forward-looking leader. How do you foresee this unfolding? You know, last summer you were talking about unions for all and a different vision of what unions should and and have to be in the future. So tell me now that we're in the midst of this disaster, how you what you expect to emerge from this relative to the labor movement? Well, we moved from unions for all to protect all workers as the pandemic was unfolding on our members and service workers because we understood that the thing we needed to demand of corporations and our government was a response on health and secu economic security in this crisis. And I actually think what we're seeing, David, across the uh, country is that workers have had it. The ones that are having to go show up for work and are not getting the protection they need are walking off the job, are doing demonstrations on social media, are speaking out and telling their stories in ways that are incredibly courageous, given what they're facing uh, each and every day. And to me, that suggests that as we come out of this uh, pandemic and the health and economic crisis, we are moving trillions of dollars from the federal government into uh, the hands of primarily businesses at the moment, but we're in a struggle to get the more resources into the communities that need it most and to working people's pockets. And I think this moment is ripe for mass organizing of working people and the communities we're in to demand uh, real change in rewriting the rules so that workers can join together in unions and have a dialogue with the best of corporations that actually do wanna do the right thing and see employees as stakeholders and hopefully drag the rest of the corporate culture along that only wants to uh, speak to their shareholders and not to all of the stakeholders uh, in this nation. You spoke uh, you in this event that you did last summer in Milwaukee about 
a different kind of bargaining that that was sectoral bargaining, bargaining over full industries. I'd love you to talk about that. It strikes me that one advantage of that to businesses is that they will all be on a level playing field if industries have a standard and they all meet that standard. There's also an incentive, as you point out, the tyranny of the quarterly report to try and cut expenses as much as possible. And labor is usually the first place that especially these big outfits look in order to save money. Yeah. We see sectoral bargaining as a way to raise um, the floor and reestablish the most inclusive, uh, racially diverse American middle class this country's ever seen. So imagine if the 175,000 janitors that we have bargaining across the country could bargain for two million and raise wages, provide health care, get paid sick, um, create dignity um, for that. Those workers are now getting trained to do COVID cleaning. Imagine if we could make that uh, accessible to every janitor in the country. And sectoral bargaining uh, would allow us to do that on a national scale. We've already seen some initial steps toward it, David, in states where Democratic governors are trying to establish a standard to allow for um, all the grocery clerks to have the protection they need. And they moved an executive, Gavin Newsom moved an executive order that covered all grocery stores in California based on the union standard. So imagine if the next step was taken and all those grocery store workers had the chance to join a union and bargain together across the whole retail grocery sector. That's an example of sectoral bargaining. We would love to see it applied to the fast food sector because fast food companies all around the world bargain nationally in many other countries. So they're used to playing by those rules and I think they could write those rules through a voluntary agreement with um, fast food workers all across this country so we could protect those four million workers on the front line, give them paid sick, which they don't currently have and which McDonald's is currently lobbying against in Congress, and turn the tables and use those jobs um, for this economy like auto jobs were for the industrial economy. Have you had dialogue with industry leaders about this? You talk about enlightened corporate leaders who might lead the way on this. Have you had those dialogues and what kind of reaction do you get? I've had some initial dialogue uh, as part of the Future of Work Commission in California and with some of our key employers in the healthcare sector and in janitorials and security. And it's what gives me hope that um, there, this moment, this reckoning that we are having as a nation might be a moment where employers who were scared to stick their heads out because the politics of the nation um, would make it even harder for them, that I think that employers too are thinking enough is enough. We have to do better as a country. I actually need a consumer base to buy mm -hmm. my products. And if there's 33 million people unemployed, 64 million people earning poverty jobs, there's no way for my business to recover. So I think the interests could be aligning in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. And when we change the who is in the White House um, this year and we have next year, I think um, we could have game-changing proposals that would really 
attack the racial and economic inequality that is holding the whole nation back. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You know, you talk about the 33 million. Tell me, you represent, as you pointed out, workers in airports. Uh, There's... Not, not a lot going on in airports right now, and, and there may not be for some time because of fear that people have about, about flying and about being in, in those kinds of settings. How has that impacted on your workers? And, you know, I, I, I know that healthcare workers are in demand and they are essential employees. Um, it's also true that, there, that hospitals and some health organizations have had to uh, put on hold a lot of other routine health care in order to face COVID-19, and some actually are laying off workers. So how have your members fared in this maelstrom? We've had airport workers lose their jobs within the first two weeks of the uh, epidemic spent, uh, spreading in key geographies in the country. We now have many uh, who are on layoff without knowing about return to work and others with reduced hours. So we were successful because of their courage and willingness to speak uh, in the first two weeks of the crisis, um, getting $3 billion designated for subcontracted airline workers as part of the $60 billion federal um, investment in the airline sector. We have not been able to get that money into the pockets of the subcontracted workers yet because Treasury is holding those dollars. So there's a bit of a struggle right now in the subcontracted force. But I think their future, David, is only, um, uh, the limit is only our imagination. Like these are very skilled workers at cleaning. We're going to need deep cleaning and COVID-trained workers all across the private and public sector. And so I just think with creative governors in the short term, we can figure out how to get people that have been furloughed or laid off um, back in the game uh, with jobs that have equity with their wages and benefits and then upskilling. Um, because if we get the whole civil society working together, major corporations in states, state government, uh, public sector, and um, nonprofit sector, we can do anything. We could create a million deep clean jobs. We could create care jobs that people could allow elders to stay at home. We could, you know, change how nursing homes operate. There's lots that, with political will, we could make happen together as a nation. Do you see this as a parallel to uh, the 30s during the Depression when FDR became president, Franklin Roosevelt, and really rethought many aspects of the social compact and economic arrangements? And we saw the WPA and we saw the CCC and we saw a lot of activity to put people back to work. Is that what is going to be necessary come January. Absolutely. And the difference today is that we are a service and care economy that's headed into the information and tech economy. 
So we need to think about how to raise the wages and benefits and the value of these essential workers. Like I had a fast food worker tell me third week of the pandemic, if I was so essential, why is it that I don't have paid sick leave? And that's, that's true for many of these jobs. So let's make a, sort of a basic standard of what it is to work in this nation and understand that it's gonna be in a crisis mode, but we can invest in a crisis and create a new shared prosperity for everybody in the nation. You made a very good point earlier, which is we are a consumer-driven economy, and if large numbers of Americans are out of work, if they are not um, making a livable wage, uh, that is a drag on the economy. Uh, it's also a, a tremendous drag on our, on our political system We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, on state and local governments, obviously mayors, governors have stepped up. They're doing extraordinary things uh, to try and protect their citizens. Um, but they're also, they're also losing revenues every day. They are spending uh, more than they plan to, uh, to try and deal with this crisis. And almost all of them are going to face severe budgetary pressures and that has to be a concern to you. You represent some of them, but it has a, a you know a broader effect. How deep is your concern about that? Um, it's at an all-time high. Uh, we represent workers who are employed uh, by city, state, and county schools, the whole public sector. We represent workers who receive services from the public sector. And as I said earlier, when we were talking about systemic racism, Black and brown communities will be disproportionately hurt by these budget deficits. And then we have a um, debate in Washington that is nowhere near the acknowledgement of the severity of the crisis um, in terms of the national, the president's response and the Mitch McConnell's response in terms of CARES 2 saying, hey, if state and local government goes bankrupt, that may need to be a consequence. And that's absolutely unacceptable from our perspective. And the federal government has to take responsibility for investing in state and local government because states are bound by balanced budget requirements as part mm -hmm. of their constitution and just our system. So I think states will be creative, David, in terms of bonds and thinking about um, how to get other kinds of investment in the short term. But I do think in the long term, term, we're going to need to see the level of investment that we just witnessed in CARES, the first CARES Act and now the second one, repeated again in order for the nation to recover. Yeah, you know, when McConnell said that, he called them blue state bailouts. The implication was these bankruptcies is that a lot of these states are grappling with pension uh, liabilities for public employees who have retired uh, and the implication is that through bankruptcy, they can vacate those agreements or rework them. I'm sure that wouldn't sit well with you. I have to say, what I would say back to Mitch McConnell is there's been a 40-year attack on the role of government. And there has been a concerted attempt by the right to um, disinvest government. And the second thing I would say is, how dare you? Um, like polarize this based on blue and red at a moment when people's lives are on the line, no matter what color the party of the state. And then the third thing is corporations have been left off the hook, David. Like they're not paying their fair share of taxes 
and then we just gave them the biggest tax cut of our generation um, two years ago, and we're going to now squeeze state and local government without asking corporations to help invest and get the economy to recover. You know, I was dealing with a French employer in the third week of the pandemic, and he just, he was shocked that our nation was going to allow three million people in the third week to file for unemployment and not figure out together with employers and government that we needed to sustain uh, workers being paid in the ways that many other countries in Europe did so yeah. that they're not experiencing this totally outrageous unemployment. Yeah, I believe Britain was paying 80% of salaries. Yeah. Scandinavia, 100%, all of whom have fully paid health care, by the way, and aren't putting workers in a situation. We know of workers who aren't going to the doctor, even though they're experiencing the symptoms of the shortness of breath, the no taste, all the, because they can't afford it. And they're terrified of um, the additional calamity that will befall their family. So instead, they go live in a tent or in a camper so that they don't infect any more people. That's just a totally wrong, immoral, and a stupid economic way for us to behave with the essential workers on the front lines. Mary Kay, one of the reasons that I wanted to get back together with you here is that when we sat down in January of 2016, um, we talked about the election that was unfolding then. And you said something to me that really, really uh, jarred me. I actually want to play you a little bit of our conversation back then, and let's pick it up on the other side. Did you see Donald Trump actually winning? Yeah, I could. I could. And, and why do you think he appeals to your members or some of your members? Um, I think he's, he's touching this vein of the terrible anxiety that working class people feel about their current status, but more importantly, how terrified they are for their kids not being able to do as well as they have, never mind doing better. You know what I mean? So that broken sense of the future and that emotion having an easier appeal to fear than to what's possible. That was before any primaries, any caucuses. I remember telling people at that time, I think I even wrote about it, that um, here was a leader of one of the most progressive unions, perhaps the most progressive in the country, saying, a bunch of my members are going to vote for Donald Trump. And, and indeed, you were right. Uh, and uh, he ended up not only winning the nomination, but winning uh, the election. Most people in the political establishment at the time you said that were skeptical, but you had your ear to the ground. Um, tell me honestly what you're hearing now. And are those members of yours who were committed to Trump, um, still committed to Trump, and why, and has anything changed? Because you look at these polls, and his number seems pretty consistent. Our members are as uh, grieved and outraged as about the politics of the country as they are about the impact of the pandemic on them, their lives and their families and the people they care for. And I think it's more than hearing what um, from workers and our members, David. I think we just saw in the Wisconsin election a indicator and signal, an example of how 
uh, working people of all races, black, white, brown, are going to persevere against horrific odds. You know, how dare the Republican state legislature in Wisconsin order that election against the advice of public health officials? And um, people rose to the occasion. Um, and I, that to me is a indicator and also what I'm hearing from members in every state in this nation, that um, people are uh, enraged and activated about the current situation and um, understand that they need to participate at record levels in order uh, to make a change this November. But that same cohort that you were talking about four and a half years ago, those conservative workers uh, within your union, where are they today? Have they changed their view? Because, you know, what the president would say is er, the things that are wrong are largely the result of undocumented workers coming across the border and um, the Chinese and and so on. And, and he has his argument and he, and he understands his target. Is he still hitting the target with your members? No. Um, working people understand that the targeting of Asian immigrants and the scapegoating of other kinds of immigrants in this country and the um, ways in which he uses race to divide us, we're done with that. We are not going to allow him um, to continue to do that. And that we, uh, we're we seeing it in workplaces and neighborhoods all across this country. People are joining together uh, to care for each other in spite of the fact that the federal government has not taken responsibility for preparing us for the spread of the virus or uh, providing the equipment we need to protect ourselves. And I would say our conservative members specifically have been um, transformed by our uh, education about what's happening with to healthcare workers on the front lines. That's why we're running these Trump accountability ads to help shine a light on the what's going on because uh, Trump was not willing to invoke the Defense Production Act he wasn't willing to turn every table over in this country to, to procure, to produce the equipment that workers need. And when people are presented with just that story, it really helps them understand that we face a very stark choice uh, this November. Labor itself faces a, a stark choice because this administration has not been hospitable to, to labor, to organizing. You've had adverse Supreme Court decisions over the last couple of years that have that have impacted on 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 unions, and the president clearly sees it in very political terms. Sees the labor movement as hostile to him, although there's no doubt that in industrial uh, in some of the industrial trade unions, his position on trade has hit a responsive chord. How much does this mean to what? What is the consequence? for the labor movement in this election, and if he were reelected, what is the impact on not just the SEIU membership, but the labor movement as a whole? Yeah, and David, I just want to expand how we see the problem. There is a problem with how he um, has been trying to attack uh, unions, but it's it's not just the art protecting our institution. It's more this notion of how do we rewrite the rules in the economy so working people can join together in unions and bargain a better mm -hmm. life. So when workers understand 
what Trump has done to embolden corporations and write the rules in their favor and uh, deregulate um, all the environmental protections and um, further uh, make it tough for people to get uh, their immigrant status to citizenship, all the obstacles that he's throwing in their ways across um, people's lives, that's when working people have a way to connect the dots. Um, and so we don't define the problem just as his attack on our institutional well-being, because it doesn't actually speak to people's hearts and minds. Of course. No, I understand the messaging, and I understand the reality of what you're saying. There's also a fundamental reality that you guys are facing in terms of your own. You are a glass half full person. That's pretty clear. What I'm saying is if the election were to go the other way, uh, what are the implications for the labor movement? I understand you're trying to separate the institutionally. I understand your argument about the welfare of, of working men and women across the country. But there's also, I mean, these things that you're talking about, regulatory changes, legal changes, administrative changes, uh, these have an impact. Yes, they do. They do. I see what you're saying. I think what will occur if uh, is that working people will continue uh, to organize on scale. And the question then is the for the labor movement is, are we going to uh, throw resources and back uh, working people being able to organize and make breakthroughs either in states or with uh, individual employers and sectors? Um, so that we can continue to strengthen ourselves and make our case in spite of who's in the White House. Um, mm -hmm. I do agree that I'm just beginning to wrap my head in the COVID moment about uh, the additional things we'd have to consider, David. Um, but our primary focus, as you can imagine, is to throw every uh, money marble and chalk that we have at making sure that Trump is not reelected. And you have thrown more than, uh, certainly more than uh, chalk. You're throwing a lot of uh, money uh, at that. You pledged at the outset $150 million. And you're doing a lot of organizing, particularly in eight states uh, that are battleground states where you have large numbers of members, I think 6 million members uh, in those states. And tell me what the nature of that organizing is and how much has it been disrupted by the fact that people can't go and they can't see each other face to face. They can't knock on doors. They can't have uh, public events. Um, that's got to be uh, an additional level of complexity for you. Yeah. It's been an incredibly exciting time in terms of organizing around political engagement, because I would say in the post COVID moment, we have a higher degree of engagement from our members and the voters that we're, we're targeting 6 million voters. We have 2 million members and the $150 million um, comes from uh, working people deciding to check off $2, $5 or $10 a month from paychecks that are sometimes not more than $40,000 a year um, up to $100,000 a year. So I just want your listeners to understand that $150 million is a blood, sweat, and tear $150 million where a home care worker or a nursing home worker decides this organization is her power and her political voice in a system that's been rigged against her for far too long. 
and she's made it her um, mission to tell her family, friends, and coworkers, hey, come on now, we got to get out and vote, and here's who we're voting for and why. And so that activity, that basic case, is being made in workplaces still today, David, because 75% of our members are going to work. They're not staying at home or working from home because of the jobs they do. So that's one way that we're staying active. The second way is we moved from door knocking online to do all kinds of social media. Um, we had 400 of our members using a purple text the first weekend of the virus. They reached a million people to encourage them to register to vote uh, because of the networks uh, they have. We use, as you can imagine, all forms, Facebook Live, Twitter, Instagram, uh, everything, TikTok, to help people get the word out. and. I don't know if you agree, but I've seen a level of creativity on social media explode. Yeah. It's just been ex yeah. explosive. So I think we found that in Wisconsin, we had to come off the doors and uh, into social media more. You guys were active in that Supreme Court race there, is that? Yes, very active. And so people went to phones, texting, uh, to stay active in the list that they uh, did. And it's certainly making us get much sharper on the voter lists. Uh, we just looked at one state where we have 2 million voters targeted. We have 1.5 million cell phones. So we're hard at work getting the other half million cell phones so we can engage uh, aggressively. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the Axe Files. As you've pointed out, some of the uh, less frequent voters uh, are in minority communities and probably among, among your members. You, for example, targeted uh, the city of Detroit and the city of Milwaukee, which really played a large role. The absence of turnout in those places played a large role in the outcome of the 2000. And 16 election. That's right. And we doubled down in 18 and drove the numbers up as kind of our test run, also to change the states, but get ready for 20. And we've stayed in both of those cities through 19 organizing and have been working the same voting groups that we did in 16 through 18, 19, and now into 20. So I think relationship and trust and not disappearing. Uh, is going to make a huge difference in Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Minnesota, Nevada, Florida, uh, Virginia. Those are the states that we're doubling down on, but our members are organizing in every state. And you're right, our top priority is driving out the vote in um, communities of color. And we've had the best success be from uh, the propensity score that's less than 50%. We, we see these not as uh, infrequent voters, but high-opportunity voters. I told you it's that half-glass-full half thing. <laughs> yeah, but our it's a lived experience. It's not like um, uh, Don Quixote windmill half-full. <laughs> it's uh, proven half-full, David. <laughs> what about Biden, uh, Joe Biden? Um, you know, he came through a primary effort. There was a fairly a significant progressive 
group out there that were not for him, saw him as a more of an establishment candidate. Uh, how is he playing with your membership? You know, he came to our Unions for All Summit in October in L.A., and he made an incredible connection with a home care worker based on his lived experience of care mm -hmm. providers at end of life, both for his first wife and uh, then his son, Beau. And I just think the power of this man's empathy in this moment leading to action and a desire to be bold is gonna be an incredible way for our members to get behind him and push in driving this um, vote out. Such a hard challenge because empathy is, is a more complicated thing to display when you're consigned to your house and have to communicate like this over, over Zoom. And so that's gonna be uh, a, an additional challenge for him. But you, you feel like your membership is responding. You don't see resistance to him. No. And we had a very good connection with him just in the last month with a home care leader in Chicago who was terrified of the multiple consumers that she was needing to care for, the lack of PPE. And there was a great interchange where he connected um, his concern for her well-being to what is required of the president to do in this time and outlined this Defense Production Act and the need to act. So I think that um, when we said to the vice president that our members are all in on trying to tackle uh, what they need right now in COVID-19, and our members, I think, are going to be on their way to considering uh, when and how to endorse. I, I want to talk to you about the larger environment. You know, in, in some ways, you yourself and your union represent an emerging America America's always evolving. And these workers that you represent, particularly uh, workers from immigrant families, uh, workers of, uh, of color, um, they, are, they are the emerging uh, American majority. That is exhilarating to some, uh, and it is frightening to others. That's, of course, what Make America Great Again is all about in the way that Trump uh, wields it. Uh, this notion that we're going to go back to to a time when the majority of America and, and American workers and American decision makers were were white and and mostly male and uh, and so on. How do you navigate that? And I'm interested in asking you this because of the union that you lead and the fact that you do have conservative members, probably more men than women uh, in that regard. How do you bridge those divides within your own union, and how do we bridge those divides within the country? We um, begin by uh, reminding ourselves that we all want the same things uh, for our families. We want um, our families to be safe, we want our families to be healthy, and we want our families to be secure. And everybody across race and across the political spectrum in our union um, shares those basic values for our families and respect and dignity for all workers. And, and we are conscious about doing member education, both when we do our political campaigning, but also our internal um, contract bargaining and our organizing work to make clear that there has been a conscious uh, attempt by the wealthy few in our nation to divide us based on race. 
And when we understand that there's been a systematic um, creation of that fear, David, we have to take the fear and move it to when we act together, we can have hope for a better life for all of us. So we deal with it by being very explicit about how race is used and by calling people to what they want for their own uh, family across. So we had an immigrant, three immigrant members spend a day with our conservative member committee to tell their stories. And it totally transformed the conservative member committee's willingness mm -hmm. to go do education of their members about how immigration was being used by the right on social media to whip up fear, to blame the uh, scapegoat, the victim on their economic circumstance. And I believe we are making inroads on it. And so I just think it, it comes back to a very visceral a feeling that people have for themselves and their children. And when we think of ourselves as parents, brothers, sisters, and not as black, white, and brown, it helps people move through it. But it's not enough. There has to be a, a race and class analysis, which we've done, that helps people make sense of the world that we're being hammered by every day versus the world we want to create together. You're, in many ways, as I mentioned, a symbol uh, of change, and you have been since you were elected as the president of the union. You're a long-term now leader of the union, and you've, you've led the union through a period of volatile uh, change, and a part of that change was the Me Too movement. You yourself have had to grapple with that within your own union ranks. You've had leaders in the union who were accused of or of abusing women, of, of doing the things that the Me Too movement has shown a bright light on. How, how wrenching has that been for you? You know, you're a leading progressive woman in this country. How do you wrestle with that? Because you still, you're running an organization. You want to be fair to everyone, including, you know, your male colleagues. Have you dealt with all of that? Well, I, um, it was a very clarifying moment for me as a leader, but also as a woman leader uh, of SEIU. And uh, I think I approached it by gathering people around me who could help me see my blind spots, and then for me to own those blind spots directly and then take decisive action uh, with the perpetrators of an abuse of power that I was not willing to tolerate. And when it became clear to me the degree of abuse of power, I took decisive action and removed the perpetrators from our union. And I'm insisting on a training and a policy that we're demanding from corporations like McDonald's and from the janitor's owners, uh, in California, and there's incredible innovative work happening to transform the systems and structures in workplaces that held those um, blind spots in place for far too long. And we are in the middle of it. Uh, I would say that it, it blew open a conversation inside of SEIU that was a long time coming. Um, and I was um, it was important for me to own my responsibility, but also take decisive action and then to lean into making sure that our, our, as an employer, 
SEIU employees could experience us living our values, but also as a union that we would be on the front lines fighting for survivors of abuse on the night shift in janitorial sectors and in fast food restaurants and McDonald's mm-hmm. and anywhere um, our members uh, live and work. So let me ask you, you know, uh, there, there's a controversy that's sort of swirling around relative to um, this woman, uh, Tara Reid, who's made an accusation against Vice President Biden. He's strongly denied it. I will just say I've, I've known him for a long time and um, was there when he was vetted for VP. So I think any charge needs to be explored, but it's nonetheless rumbling around the social media. Has that created any resistance among your members, given the discussion we just had? I think it was important for our members to hear that uh, the vice president said that all women should be heard, including Tara Reid, and that um, we wholeheartedly agree with that position, just as we've been on the front lines fighting for women who have brought their own charges against corporations like McDonald's or that we've bargained on behalf of for the cleaning contractors in California and all across the country. And so with those actions, I think our members are, frankly, David, very committed to making sure that we create a new system in our workplaces where no woman has to suffer any harassment or abuse. Just as we go out here, Tell me about this election and what you think is at stake in it, because someone's going to win and someone's going to lose, and the result is going to have vastly different implications. Yeah, I think um, our lives are at stake. I think the future of our economy and democracy, and that's not hyperbole from my perspective, but I think given the crisis that we're managing of both economic uh, proportion and health, um, that that's, it, that's on the ballot. And this question of uh, who we are as a nation and how we value whose life uh, as a nation uh, is really uh, critical for the future of this country. Well, I know you guys are going to be out there in force, in purple, uh, from now uh, to November. Uh, Mary Kay Henry, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You are a uh, you are a force, and a positive force, and a genuine force, and uh, I appreciate your candor, and I appreciate appreciate your insights, and I said last time that I was going to invite you back in 10 years to re- review your, uh, to review all of your, um, your prognostications, um, but I'm glad that it wasn't 10 years, and I hope... It feels like it's been 10 years, but it's only <laughs> been two. It does. Well, let's let's uh, do it again soon. It's, it's great to be with you. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.